0: on the Cow Daily. Today we have uh, esteemed doctor and epidemiologist, Dr. Deepti Gurdasani. Um, on a personal level, um, the reason I've asked Deepti to come on, actually I'll just bring Deepti in and I'll tell, tell her <laughs> how you're doing. I want to just tell you something before we do the interview and work and all of that stuff, right? On a personal level, right, um, during the lockdowns and everything, your appearance on Navara really gave my family like a lot of help. And just on that, and I know you get lots of crap off people online. I wanted to try and counter that a bit before we start. This isn't the podcast, this is me just talking to you. Um, okay. thanks so much. Really, though, thanks so much. I don't think you understand the many more people you've helped because the loud ones always seem to get the airtime, don't they? So thanks, mate, and welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. That's that's really nice to hear.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I followed you for a while since then, obviously, and um I see what what you get, and it's just so unjustified. I, it drives me mad. And it's actually directed at you. So, like, should we just start there? Like, how does it feel, right? To be who you are, you're an expert in your field, and every time you post something on Twitter, you just get attacked? Like, how does that feel?
1: Well, I mean, obviously, it doesn't feel great, but I think, you know, uh, the way I thought about it for a while is that if you're not actually that, that a lot of that is a sign that you're sort of challenging narratives that make and, and making people uncomfortable because the response is always to a challenge. If you weren't making a difference and people wouldn't feel that threatened and they wouldn't feel like shutting you down that much. So for me, it's also a sign that, you know, um, I am being heard and I am making a difference because people do need to shut it down. So I think that's the positive side of it. Um, Also, I just want to say that I don't see as much as many other people see um, of of the criticism because I'm very, very liberal with blocking. So actually, I see a lot more of the supportive responses and 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 the support, I have to say, has been absolutely overwhelming. And it's also helped me kind of get on a personal level because I've learned a lot. From uh, you know the the disability advocacy community, uh, you know as, as you know, I'm also immunocompromised you know, compromised and disabled, and and there've been a lot of people that I've I've learned a lot from over the last yeah. three years, and, and that's been a great experience. And I don't think that could have happened without actually having that platform on Twitter.
0: Yeah, I agree, and that's, I'm really pleased that you've you you you've done that block and because I think some of the stuff. I mean, it's just crazy. And I'm pleased you don't say it. I mean, there's no need to say it either. I mean, I've got a smaller platform than you, and I get enough. And sometimes it did hurt, but I've just decided to like block if it's personal. I'm, I'm like, I'm sure you're the same. You'll, you'll debate anybody if it's in good faith. But there's not a lot of that to be hard on social media when it comes to this absolutely
1: Um, i pick up very quickly whether discussions like sea lining are going to be in good faith or not and if it's not in good faith i just block i don't engage at all because i feel like it's a waste of emotional energy and time and also a lot of the time like i don't think it's actually personal i think there are bots and i think it's a coordinated campaign and if you look Mm -hmm. at it as a coordinated campaign that's aim is to sort of shut you down then you really choose your interactions and deal with it largely by ignoring it and, and making sure your message actually gets out
0: well, that's good, good advice for anybody who's trying to do any kind of campaigning, I think. Um, just on, on COVID as well, I mean, as we, we're in 2023, what do you believe are the most significant challenges we face in terms of COVID and how can we as individuals and communities best address them? And obviously within the context of it being a politicised thing as well, as well as a public health thing.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I think the biggest challenge we actually face is misinformation and lack of accurate information, because, I mean, there has been a coordinated campaign, uh, not just by Western interests but also, you know, governments and public health agencies to sort of um, underplay the importance of COVID, and uh, particularly its longer term impacts. So, Mm -hmm. you know, long COVID is something that I feel the public isn't really aware of the consequence in their lives, sadly, until either they get affected, or somebody they care about or love gets affected. And I think that will have a huge impact in the future. And I think the challenge for us is how we combat that and make people understand that this remains a serious threat despite uh, vaccination uh, because high levels are still circulating and it's continuing to affect people on a day-to-day basis. And even though the impacts might not be felt immediately, it's an important problem that we need to address right now.
0: Yeah, just on that, I mean, I was going to ask you that later, but let's do it now. Um, What I've been reading about lately has really troubled me in terms of like repeat infections and how it can open people up to dormant um, viruses or life illnesses. Could you expand on that for us and let us know what's going on?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody has a full hold on things, but I think there are a number of concerning things about uh, the virus. So one is, of course, long COVID, and with long COVID, um, there is increasing amounts of evidence that, at least in some people, long COVID is the result of inflammation because of a persistent virus. So it could be like persistent parts of the virus, so like the virus protein, uh, or it could be the virus that's replicating. We don't exactly know, and it's not uncommon. It's not it, it's not that it happens only in people who are, say, you know, compromised. It's a virus that can persist in different tissues in the body without being detected in our sort Mm of nasal sampling, uh, even in, you know, healthy people. (laughs) Um, So, you know, in the gut, in um, numerous tissues in the body, um, as well as uh, the brain. So, you know, uh, these are things that that are very, very concerning, because should we be thinking of this more, more as a chronic illness that doesn't clear for everyone? The other is, of course, the impact that it has on other viruses. So I think yeah. quite early on, we had evidence that um, COVID infection could lead to reactivation of other viruses that are latent, like you know Epstein-Barr virus or cytomegalovirus. And there have been a few large studies with rather concerning results showing that people who develop COVID in the post-COVID period are at risk of potentially other respiratory infections, um, other infections like uh, RSV, for example, in children, Mm -hmm. as well as um, streptococcus tonsillitis, uh, and and that increased risk can persist for long periods of time. So again, we don't know these associations are absolutely cause and effect, but the fact that, you know, you see um, this increased risk in people who develop COVID compared to people don't when you try and match for other factors that might be associated with infection, you see that increased risk suggests that there might be some level of um, immune dysfunction or inflammation, for whatever reason that that we don't fully understand. So again, it's the long-term consequences that really worry me more than the acute consequences. But mm-hmm. you know, even acute in acute infection, even now, you know, if you really look at it, we are having a significant number of deaths every day. Uh, you know, people talk about it less, but it's it's certainly not I- insignificant. You know, I mean, in for example, in in England, for a lot of the time, you you see you you see very high levels of hospitalisation still, and you know, of course, the the peaks seem smaller, but that's because they're taking off from a higher and higher baseline. So, the the burden on healthcare, the number of people getting hospitalised, the number of people dying every week, is still quite significant.
0: Mm. Understood. Um, I mean, I myself, um, I'm, I'm not sure because I think it was asymptomatic, but I think a bout of COVID may have triggered shingles in me, and um, I had a really bad case of it. Um, and the after effects and whatever lasted about a year, so I assume like a kind of long COVID response to it. Uh, additionally, um, and recently, there's people I know One's a DJ. He had a gig and he had a stroke on the toilet. Um, after he's gig at 5 a.m. There's another friend who's a care worker. He got repeated COVID infections, and he has just been discharged from the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Gateshead in the Northeast. Um, He was in the lung ward, then he was in the heart ward, so he's had issues there. Um like from what you said earlier you were saying that there's been like sort of um things being minimized by um health agencies and other things of that nature if this is going to like bring forward things um like end of life stuff but also put this kind of stuff in the more long term when it breaks down the body how will we know it's linked to covid if we're not tracking this
1: i mean that's a real problem isn't it because we, mm. we won't i mean <laughs> that's that's a fact we've stopped use largely stop testing it's up to people whether they do rapid tests or not but you know for most people this is like the flu so you know what is the point of getting tested so um you know looking at things like the consequences of new variants or linking you know covid to um long-term effects like heart attacks strokes pulmonary embolisms it's really really hard um mm. it, it's Hard for multiple reasons. One, we don't have you know clear testing and linking. Second, the medical community often isn't aware that COVID is a risk factor for these things, so it, the link is often not made when you find a young person coming in with with without the risk factors, traditional risk factors, I should say, because we know COVID is a risk factor for those sort of things. And often people aren't aware. So they don't know that their risk profile has changed when they've got COVID. And, you know, repeated infections are even more complicated to pick up because, you know, we know, for example, in the UK about, you know, not only has about 90% of the population been infected at least once, we know there's been high rate of reinfection. So, you know, reinfection rates have been around 50% at least. And that means that You know, many people have had more than one infection, but then if people aren't really monitoring um, when they get infected, you know, if they're treating it as a cold, then how do we understand the long-term impact of reinfections in the future? So I think we've really scuppered our ability to be able to understand the long-term consequences and, and respond, whether that's deliberate or not. I don't know, but it's certainly not the smart thing to do.
0: Yeah, I mean rather sobering hearing you say that and I hoped you wouldn't say that that would be scuppered but it's kind of like now it seems like there's plausible deniability for the powers that be and I mean just on that level like from the political level like how have you what's been your personal experience or just wider experience like with the way politics has dealt with this pandemic because to my mind politicians shouldn't be anywhere near a public health response I think that's been proven but what's your opinion? (laughs)
1: So I think my initial response was that I was surprised, but you know now looking back, I guess I shouldn't have been. I mean, if you look at uh, every single threat, public health threat like this in history, where the response would have perhaps hurt vested interests you know this has happened so if you look at the links for example between smoking and lung cancer they were known for a really really long time before any regulation and policy was done and you know a lot of that push was from grassroots movements it's not like politicians came in and said hey we need to protect public health so we need to you know make these policies Um, and it it took decades of uh, you know denial even uh, by quoting fringe scientists pretty much what we're seeing now. uh, And, you know, we've seen the same story with climate change, right? I mean, we've known climate change for years, we know this is potentially an extinction event, and we still don't have policies for this. And if you look at it, you know, in in my view, ultimately, governments work for um, the more privileged and the the corporate interests and and vested interests. And, And there is there doesn't seem to be any interest in in those entities to protect public health. So I think this is something that we have to fight for at grassroots level as people who are going to be most affected by this because we can't expect governments to do very much. So I'd like to say I'm surprised, but uh, I think history shows that this is what happens every single time.
0: Yeah. I mean, just on that, I mean, we've talked recently about like the great forgetting after the, um, I don't like calling it the Spanish flu. I know that was just what it was branded as, but you, you know, so, I mean, just for people who don't know on the screen, um, for audio people, this from history.com. Um, and few personal stories were published. It wasn't just doctors. No one really wanted to talk or write about what it was like to live through the flu. Newspaper articles about the pandemic didn't usually describe the personal stories of those who died or survived. Um, with that in mind, Deeply, do you think we're in great forgetting 2.0? Oh,
1: I think it's beyond 2.0. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I mean, it's quite interesting now that, you know, there is research being done on the long term effects of COVID, people are also looking at the long term effects of flu, you know, mm. what people consider, you know, the common cold. And, you know, the, it shows that with every flu infection, uh, there was a large study, I think, from Denmark that showed it increases your risk of neurodegenerative disease, so things like dementia, you know, Parkinsonism. So it, it's very likely that, you know, we've been exposed to many, many, many things that have, that are harmful, that, I, um, that are harmful to public health. So, you know, if you talk to patients with myalgic encephalitis and chronic fatigue syndrome, you know, many of them have been disabled by what people consider to be simple illnesses. You know, we've very recently understood the connection between, you um, um, you know, Epstein-Barr virus and and multiple sclerosis, which yeah, we know is right. a very serious and, and disabling disease. So you know, how much is there that we don't know? Perhaps you know the the real um, answer to these things is that getting exposed to multiple infectious diseases was never a good thing, and, and COVID yeah. has really really brought this to the fore because the the long term impacts are so. Um, well, are are, are not uncommon, you know, they're they're common and they're disabling. So, you know, we're seeing the impacts now, but the thing is the solutions to all of these things are collective. So, you know, things like clean air, for example, would help with all of these diseases, not, not even a single disease. So the solutions should be looked at as something that, you know, perhaps massively improves public health in so many ways without, you know, being even specific to COVID.
0: Yeah, I've got you, man. Um, You mentioned um, sort of mitigations and whatnot. In an ideal world, say you were given the job of public health dictator, for want of a better word, right? And it was all on you. What would be your perfect public health response? Like, what would be the things that you would say, right, this is what's going to save as many lives, but not only that, stop the infection, stop the, not maybe end-of-life stuff, but the disablements and things of that nature?
1: So, you know, I think public engagement has to be in the heart of it. So you can't just you know impose things on people they have to understand that actually um their health is at risk and that it can be massively improved by having certain things in place so I think uh, information about airborne transmission of the virus and how it can be massively reduced by two way not one way um you know well-fitting masks provision of well-fitting masks to everyone so you know it's not sort of something for the privileged, uh, clean air. So provision of clean air through air filtration in the short term and in the long term, uh, changing ventilation systems and infrastructure to be better ventilated, more open, particularly in environments where high levels of transmission occur, like in schools, and where you know even children's development and, and cognitive abilities can suffer because of very high levels of carbon dioxide and buildup and crowding. Um, yeah so those would be i think the the initial things things like um, you know free tests available with with support for isolation financial support carer support um you know for for parents um you know uh, and practical support uh you know like pharmacies groceries all of that sort of uh, thing to ensure that people can really isolate without taking a hit in their you know personal lives um so yeah, I mean those would be the things, and of course continuing vaccination, and and not just for you know very very limited groups, but uh, even for children because children do sadly suffer with long COVID and acute effects of infection, um, and antivirals broader aspect uh, broader availability of antivirals not just to extremely limited groups. I think that would probably be my. My wish list i don't know if i've forgotten something
0: <laughs> <laughs> i would like to make you world queen would you accept <laughs> i'd like to i'd like I you know, to run things
1: very very stressful and very colonial so i think yeah,
0: well up. you know it's a figure of speech i've just fl- I've pivoted to run things instead but honestly i'd like you to be doing this i mean we i recently spoke with uh, the deputy leader of the green party zach polanski and uh, asked him about um filter systems I mean you probably see I've got one over my shoulder there um because I've yeah, learned I've I, yeah That's yeah I just I, 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 partly yeah. down to you actually just following you wow. finding out what what to do so I went and bought one changes the, the air in the room every five times an hour um wow, so great. Yeah. Yeah. the reason being is I was recently on a book actually I'll tell you about Zach first I mean what he d- he did was Like, which is quite different for a politician. We had a little bit of pushback about it. But he emailed me back the next day and said that Caroline Lucas was speaking at the all-party parliamentary group on coronavirus. said, have you got any evidence? So we've sent him a load. So there seems to be a mechanism developed, and I think part of what um, we're trying to do is that thing that you spoke to before. People just don't seem to know. They're just, like, I mean Zach was across it more than most politicians because they're just ignoring it, but he's not. But There's a dearth of information. So, like, how do we how do we change that? Like, what do we do?
1: So, I mean, I think there's a huge disparity in (laughs) the thinking of people who are more privileged, who perhaps have seen less of the impacts of COVID, and people who are already struggling with chronic disease, disabled, and really worried about their health. People who are clinically vulnerable, or people who have family members who are clinically vulnerable. and, you know, parents of, of children who are clinically vulnerable, I think um, that that's basically the problem. So you have this class of privileged people who feel, who actually in some cases have the protections. Like we know that, you know, the protections that are in parliament, for example, and in, in Davos were far greater than you see in, in many other parts of the world. So, you know, they are about to be protected. Many of them can work remotely, you know, they are far less affected that, by public policy because they can I guess manage to shield somewhat versus you know people um, who are poorer, ethnic minorities, uh, clinically vulnerable, who are probably impacted more. And I think that is basically the problem. There is an inequity that's a result of COVID and a result of policy. Um, and and you know it, it is basically discriminatory because uh, public health policies need to work for everybody. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, so you have to actually start with the people who are perhaps most at risk, and they need to work for them. And for that to happen, it needs to be safe for everyone. Mm -hmm. And I don't see that happening from top down, again, because I think there is always going to be that presence of vested interest pushing a different agenda. And I think also people who are privileged often don't see the impacts in reality on on, uh, the people that these things impact the most, because there's a huge disparity in COVID impacts. So I think grassroots movements are going to push this. And I think it's going to take a really, very really long time to push for change. And in the meantime, there are people who are going to suffer as they have with every single um, public health threat that has come into place in the past. I think there's never been a swift government response. And I think it's up to us as, um, you know, people who are COVID cautious, who care about COVID, people who are disabled, people who um, are already suffering from long COVID, M-E-C-F-S, um clinically vulnerable, parents, teachers, um, health and social care workers to really push for that change.
0: Understood. So, I mean, I think for me, we tend to wrestle with taboo topics quite a lot. And COVID has become a taboo. Like, yeah. what what's that about, though? I mean, just on what possible level... Could it be yeah. made a taboo? You know, I think it for me it fits into the psychological aspects of like a great forgetting and how people are just ignoring and whatever and throwing themselves. Because we saw the roaring 20s after the, the pandemic in 1918. So do you think people are just so sick of like constantly being overclocked with the brain that just went off and they're just ignoring? What do you think is going on psychologically?
1: I think there's a level of cognitive dissonance. So I think people are actually at some level <laughs> worried about this. But I think a lot of people, especially people who are more privileged, live in a sort of bubble that, you know, really bad things don't happen to us, right? They happen to Mm -hmm. other people. We live in this world where things aren't arbitrary or random, you know. Uh, Essentially, you know, generally, our government wouldn't not kind of protect us if this was really a risk, you know. So I think there's a dissonance between sort of that sort of safety bubble sort of thinking and the reality when you're faced with oh, my God, here's a virus that is infecting a huge number of people every single week and has effects on every single system in the body. And this getting one infection could increase my risk of heart attacks, strokes, diabetes substantially a year down the line, my risk of dying, essentially. And I think it's very hard for people to sort of accept that, you know, accept the cognitive dissonance of my government would let this happen. I mean, surely. Yeah surely that that can't be right you know because I live in we have a safety net we live in the UK which is this like you know <laughs> what do I say one of the world leading countries how could that possibly happen so you know somebody must be wrong about this and, mm. and I don't really want to hear about it because if I do it's it's really really terrifying that something like that can happen to me in this country you know and I think a lot of yeah. people live in that safety bubble which is why I think they don't really see the clarity. And I think people who are less privileged don't live in that safety bubble. They know really horrible things happen to people. The world isn't just and the government doesn't protect you, you know? And if you have that view, then it's easy to then understand and accept that this is yet another one of those things where you're being let down and you have to fight for it.
0: Yeah, I understand. So the general message is we're going to have to fight for this. There's going to be no gimmies here. I mean, the thing is, I found out recently that um, they've got filter systems in the Palace of Westminster, in the Ministry of Defence, and they're in every room at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Now, we spoke about misinformation, um, and a lot of the people also have like uh, you know this thing about the World Economic Forum. So you would think that with conspiracy theorists, and I'm thinking this might be an in because I do have dialogue, that it would be like, if you're so against these people who tend to run the world, in your opinion, why have they got these in every room if it's not real? So, I mean, I'm just trying to come up with things to just try and like intervene or or whatever, because it's all around me, you know, I'm from a working class area and like Newcastle is a world center for anti-vax bullshit. One of the big marches was there. It links in with this guy who's like all about the 5g and all of that. And, I've seen a real change just, just on that. Actually, you know, I mentioned earlier, I had like about a year where I just couldn't do podcasts and I couldn't write. I had brain fog. It was ridiculous. So when I did come back, um, it, I I hadn't been online at all. Like just checked in with people for a while. I'm all right, but I'm trying to get better. So I'm staying away. When I did come back and I was healthy, I wrote about clinically vulnerable people and clinically extremely vulnerable people thinking the people that follow us tend to be like on balance, like really nice. And it was about 50 yeah. 50 between like yeah that's right nice one great to see you back and shut up heretic this is all over now and then i'll be like well what about these people and it would just be like some people would be like what am i going to do about it and i was like yeah. what so Not do you friend. feel like that that rebound effect is like continuing in terms of it's making people a bit colder
1: um the the rebound effect from Well, just the was- rebound effect
0: from like that period. So I'm talking about like yeah. lockdowns, the psychological impact of this. Yeah. When people were in the house, they were just like, you know, they sat in front of the computers having bullshit poured into their, their, their faces, you know, and they were a receptive audience for like anti vax conspiracy theories. So I'm wondering because that's a gateway to the wider firmament of conspiracies. Do you yeah, feel I mean- that like I
1: think media is playing a huge role. And it's not just fringe media, you know, Mm -hmm. like fringe-wing right media. I think that's played a big role. But I think even mainstream media. I mean, where in mainstream media do you see anything about the seriousness of COVID, about how it's transmitted, about how to really mitigate? I mean, most of the stuff that I saw even on, on BBC News, even the interviews that many of the interviews that I participated in. I mean, I, I think they were quite far away from reality or even scientific consensus.
0: Mm. So I
1: think a lot of the narratives that we see on the news are are manufactured, you know, and yeah. they media isn't independent either. And I think, you know, unless you really critically appraise every bit of information that you're getting, you really get sucked into it, you know, unless you're kind of actively... Uh, you know, following the research on things, um, you're not really understanding the, the scientific consensus. I also have a slightly more cynical view on this. So I think we do live in a, an ableist society. I think we always have. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, if you look at history in, in the UK and the US, it was a heart of the eugenics movement as well. And, you know, uh, while that movement became unpopular, it was mainstream at one point in time, you know, in the UK and they were scientists who were mainstream and in, in the biggest institutes in the UK and, and quite famous and popular at the time. Mm-hmm. So to me, you know, the, the ableism and this idea of, you know, ultimately, this is going to affect a few people, or perhaps elderly people, you know, who are, you know, going to die and it's just mm-hmm. going to sort of move their dying up a bit, you know, but we can't really make sacrifices for this group of people. I think those narratives are very much entrenched in our society. That thinking is entrenched in our society. I know people haven't come out and said it in exactly the same way as we've seen it said during COVID, but I think it's 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 part of our society. And anybody who who is disabled, you know, clinically vulnerable, um, will tell you that this has historically been a huge part of society. And I know a lot of the ableism has come to light now, but I I, I think it's sort of Rather than being a new thing, it sort of showcases a very dark side to society that has always existed, you know.
0: Indeed. And just on that, I think the whole like um, population management, social engineering of programs like Benefits Britain and all of that kind of crap has kind of really set the groundwork for this, you know, Um, very much targeting disabled people. Just um, like I know that you've um, moved recently, you moved to Australia. Like what, why did you decide to move?
1: Well, I mean, I I think as a family, we sort of felt, one, that our lives had become really, really small in the UK because of Mm. really ableist and unequal policies, which, you know, frankly, force people like me, immunocompromised, and our families into a future of uh, perpetual shielding, unless you want to take the risk to become really, really ill. Um, And of course, uh, the (laughs) of the healthcare system, I mean, there were so many things, you know, the, the fact that you, if you were ill, you might not be able to get an ambulance for a life-threatening emergency was, frankly, yeah. quite scary. And um, I think the general move of, of the UK, you know, in terms of Bre- Brexit, economic consequences, corruption in government, becoming more and more authoritarian, less and less accountability, regulation, human rights, increase in hate crime and racism, I think all of those put together made us feel it it wasn't the place we wanted our daughter to grow up. And we wanted a better life for her. Um, So, you know, we decided to make the move to Western Australia, which at the time had better COVID policy, possibly not anymore. But people are certainly more COVID aware. Masking is more common, although not very common. Uh, But just things like the climate and the architecture and, you know, less inequality makes... Uh, in terms of COVID, it makes it, you know, a, a bit safer. Our daughter has more for life. There's, you know, <laughs> out just so many more stuff happening on beaches and parks. And, you know, her life, which had really diminished in the UK, um, is, is so much more richer now. And I think that was our, our primary aim. And I feel really validated having made that decision, just just seeing her thriving here.
0: That's oh, magic, man. I'm pleased for you. Uh, it's just, I just think, like, anybody who can gain some happiness at the moment, you got to go for it, haven't you? You know, I, 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 I share your assessment about Britain, too, and hopefully we can fix it. But it's going to be a long haul, I think. Um, if it's all right, we we'll just pull up some questions from um, the people who listen and watch um, we sent a few through this morning. If it'll come up here. Um, this from Carlos. Is there an organization collecting information on the new variants of COVID being reported as the UK appears to be trying to force forget the public into moving on from COVID now, including the reporting increased forcing of workers back end officers? So obviously the question is, is anybody tracking or collecting information currently?
1: So the COVID genomics consortium, which is called, I think, COG UK is supposed to be doing this. So they, I think, publish a website that is updated. You don't hear very much about it. So unless you're a kind of specialist, following this area, it's going to be pretty hard to track. I think the UK Health Security Agency puts out arbitrary updates once in a while, but it's not sort of regular. So I don't know if there's a kind of regular way to follow it experts tend to follow it on sort of things like cog uk um and there's another website called outbreak info uh but I, I wouldn't know how you could necessarily regularly follow that if if you you aren't actually you know following it on those websites
0: yeah got you um i'll just scroll back to this one here um this is from steve jackson um, has the risk reduced as time has gone on, or is it just on the basis of how busy the NHS wards are? Also, why has the public vaccination stopped when we were worried the virus mutated so fast the original vaccine was no longer as effective?
1: So has the risk fallen? I mean, certainly the risk of death and hospitalisation per infection has fallen after vaccination mm-hmm. um but of course as you've pointed out you know uh vaccination wanes even protection from severe disease wanes over time although it wanes less so uh, and we have much much more infection happening so that kind of catches up the sort of to some extent the sort of reduction in the risk of acute infection per infection in terms of long covid i think we don't know very much to be honest so yeah Um, in terms of reinfection, what the risk of long COVID is. I think the only evidence we have right now suggests that reinfection isn't necessarily benign. Mm. So, you know, the risk of organ dysfunction, strokes, heart disease, all of that cumulatively increases with every infection. How that changes exactly with booster vaccinations um, and with Omicron, again, it's not something that, and with different variants, is not something that we have an answer to because, you know, as you said, we're not really monitoring this. So we are not really keeping up In terms of the evidence, with how things things are changing, Mm -hmm. Um, the the other question. um, Sorry, there was another question.
0: I think I missed. I'll pull it back up for you. Here we go. So, has the risk reduced as time has gone on?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't understand that that bit at all. Why why boosting? you know, boosting is not happening regularly across all age groups. I mean, Mm. we have so much evidence, one, that uh, SARS-CoV-2 evolves more rapidly than many other viruses, and that that evolution has been, you know, towards more and more escape quite rapidly. And we know that um, given how far the virus has evolved from the original variants, and even from the updated bivalent vaccine, Mm -hmm. that there is a high level of escape and that protection against infection, for example, reduces very, very quickly, and even in fact, uh, protection against severe disease wanes. So, I mean, my thinking is that we should be giving people boosters regularly and, and not annually. I think, you know, they need to kind of keep up with the pace of virus evolution uh, because, for example, the current XBB variants that are kind of spreading across the world yeah. are supposed to be, you know, escape, current vaccines quite well in terms of, I think, protection from infection and transmission, perhaps less so with severe disease, but we don't actually know that. So I would be working hard on <laughs> updating these vaccines and, and giving boosters to all age groups regularly. Uh, so I'm not exactly sure why the government has, uh, is it has been slow on that or, or many governments across the world have stopped
0: doing yeah. that. Understood, mate. Um, you've been really generous with your time. There's just a couple more questions and then we'll let you get back to, to your world there. But, um, so this is from zoe and zoe's one of the people that makes me want to like keep talking about this she's clinically vulnerable um just one of the people we've been talking about and I always think about zoe and other friends as well um so what you're saying is for the audio people um, so much I want to ask, but I don't think I'm going to make the live. Not a great mental health day for me. I'll watch back later. Main things are how we can judge the dangers now. Almost data has stopped being published. Are there any alternatives to jabs yet or intestine stages? That I've had a bad reaction, number three, and don't want any more now. And just to thank her for all she and everyone else involved with Indie Sage, et have done to help us get, uh, guide us through hell. Have a good show. It's lovely.
1: Yeah, well, I would say that in in terms of vaccination, yeah, I completely understand if you're vaccine injured and you've had a bad reaction, you may not want to take um, another dose of mRNA. In that case, I don't know if this is available in the UK, but in most other countries, we have Novavax, which is supposed to have a better side effect profile. And um, I mean, in terms of new variants, we think it's possibly as... um, uh, as effective as uh, some of the upgraded uh, variant vaccines. I think Novavax is also working on upgrading to current variants, but uh, Novavax, even wild-type variant vaccine, would be an option for you in most parts of the world, but I'm not sure about what's happening in the UK, so you would have to look that up. But that, that would have a different safety profile uh, because of the way that the vaccine is configured compared to mRNA vaccine. So certainly if you have vaccine injury, I would consider that option.
0: Cool. Um, last question. It's a personal one for me, really. And my partner's a physiotherapist. She works in a kind of like ten meter by ten meter clinic to our own practice. Um, is there a way that we could mitigate against her ever catching it by installing filters, masking? Like, is there a way to just basically say you're hundred percent not gonna get COVID? Oh. No. I-
1: I don't think you can ever drop the risk to 0%. I think you can mitigate to very, very high levels. So, for mm. example, wearing a well-fitting um, N95 or N99 mask and never taking it off. So doing a fit test and, and make sure you never take it off in the room. Yeah. Um, and having Is that um, where,
0: while clients are there or just generally? She would have to keep it on all day.
1: So I, I would have it while clients are there, but even after the clients leave the room, if you have filters on, until the filter has done a number of air exchanges. Yeah. You know, so maybe keep it on for, depending on the level of ventilation and the air exchanges, for another half an hour or so, you know, because, you know, aerosols can hang around in the air even when people aren't around.
0: So would you and say half an hour gap between, say, sorry, your button, but half an hour gap between people would be good. So see somebody, half an hour gap, let the air exchange, then see somebody after half an hour.
1: Oh, um, I mean, if she's wearing a high, if they're wearing a, a well-fitting kind of uh, high-grade mask, then I don't think yeah. it needs to be a gap. Yeah, it depends on who you're trying to protect. If you're trying to protect yourself, yes. then, you know, if you're wearing a, a well-fitting mask and you have the filter going, that's fine. If you want your patients to be, sorry, patients to be protected, then, yeah, then you might need to consider having either a very, very high filtration rate um, or having, um, you know, gaps between them so that, or mandating, you know, uh, well-fitting masks that you provide mm. for them to really reduce the amount of aerosol in the air. So I think there are multiple things that you can do. And the more layers of protection you have, the less likely you'll get infected and also the less likely patients will get infected from each other.
0: Oh, that's magic, mate. And like, it's nice on the way out that you gave um, my family some more quality information, but this time directly. So... Thanks so much. Honestly, I really appreciate you just as a human being. You've done some cracking work throughout this entire time. I bet you've saved a lot of lives because you've informed us and we didn't have a bloody clue at the start of all of this. We didn't have a clue. So it's people like you that like possibly why I'm still here. So thanks, mate. Thank you very much.
1: I'm sure you would have found the information anyway, but thank you.
0: Well, um maybe as I would have done, but I don't want to downplay it. I genuinely mean that. Like it was you were one of the go to people. So i had to real like honor to be able to tell you that to your face. And um if we we'll never speak again, I hope you have the very best of life with your families. Thank you,
1: you know and you mean? too. Uh, All the best, mate.
0: Thank you so much for being here and being bye. generous with your time. All the best. Thank you. Bye. I was deeply there. What a lovely woman she is, man. Like, seriously, like as I said to, to her, and it was, it is a real honor to be able to tell her that. And I know she's helped so many other people. And I think it's important in 2023 after everything that we've all been through to honor and praise people who've done great work. Um, because I think we're too quick to jump on people left and right. And also we've got to protect people like her because, you know, fair play she's blocking people, but some of the stuff that people like, Deep D get online is absolutely vile, probably bots as well. A lot of it, but yeah, protect the good ones. So, anyway, if you want to support my work, please go to patrun.com forward slash cow daily. That's patreon.com forward slash cow daily. Um, link in the description for PayPal if you want to make one off contribution to our work and um, also thank you to everybody um generally for being here I mean obviously this is one that we're doing on COVID but as you know I haven't been able to um book guests and talk to them because um <laughs> quite ironically for this show I um wasn't well enough and I kept going up and down up and down with this long COVID virus whatever the hell it was one day we'll find out because I'll be afford the tests but um yeah it's just nice to be able to sit and act. it feels like full from a personal perspective it feels like full circle like um watching deeply when i was really ill and being worried to get into this point now where i'm healthy enough and part of that is down to use keeping me here and lifting me up and enabling me to get to the point where it really does just feel like the beginning again like we're re- like relaunching properly because um my health good health has met um sort of you know the the momentum of what we're doing and um been over five years um obviously as you know before that if people are just tuning out at a spinal surgery so they're all kind of stacked up for me the isolation and things like that and i just want to say this to people as well and i understand that like the isolation that we've all experienced due to lockdowns and whatever was terrible i I myself was doing that like alone like uh, for a year after my spinal surgery when i was learning to like walk properly again and couldn't really get out the house and all that. So I already had a load of that stacked up before lockdown. So I went mad when Boris Johnson announced it. If I had a cat, it would have ended up in Australia, like being looked after by Deep Dee, I think. Um, Cause I would have kicked it that far. I wouldn't have really done with animal abuse, but you get my point. So um, just thanks. Cause you's out there, if you're listening on the playback, if you're watching this live and just, Anybody like people who maybe don't even tune in the show, you'll never hear this, but like, you know, the, like people are on our social media as well. Thank you very much. feels like a completion cycle to me and, um, Big up deeply and all of our family as well. And, um, I let's just keep putting the pressure on. I'm not going to live in a world where clinically vulnerable people have to stay in the house and I'm going to do everything, everything that I can to at least make it so the people who are doing this are mugged clean off and that's often the starting point for getting these bloody filters in so one of my shoulder there that way or that way that way it's all in reverse on the screen anyway have a really nice day everybody and um i think i'm i'm going to too um really nice to feel uplifted talking to people like deeply and just think you know we've got a chance knowledge is power bye now <music>